Bienvenue, and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and each month I provide a glimpse into French history and culture. I've been settling into my new apartment, and it took a little longer than I'd hoped to set up a new recording studio. I had to order some new equipment, and to be honest, I'm still working out the kinks, so I apologize if you hear a bunch of scooters in the background of this episode. Trying my best here, folks. As it turned out, the delay was a bit of a blessing in disguise, because it gave me the time to really luxuriate in the research for this month's subject. Because this month, we're talking about someone who might be one of my favorite characters ever featured on this show. Marie Bonaparte is what I like to call a fascinating woman. The kind of woman who spends her life being unconventional, pioneering, wildly interesting, and getting away with it all by being very rich. Her life story is outrageous, shocking, and almost too on the nose metaphorically. She's the descendant of the man who swept away the Ancien Régime, and she used her inheritance to drag Europe into the modern age. Marie Bonaparte was blessed and cursed with a larger-than-life family, and this obsession with family brought her into contact with the ultimate expert on the subject, Sigmund Freud. From a line of tyrants, murderers, and emperors, Marie's own enduring legacy is that of an advocate for the refugee, the child, and the visionary. While her ancestors traded on their power, their money, and their name to acquire more of the same, Marie Bonaparte used her influence to push for newer worlds, broader minds, and safer harbors. She experimented with her sexuality, she launched an illustrious career, and she saved the life of one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. Marie Bonaparte's life is far too interesting to fit into a single episode. To begin, and with Freud, where else could you begin, we'll focus on Marie Bonaparte's family. Perhaps you've heard of them. Along the way, we'll encounter royal refugees, lions, murderers, Hitler, a seriously weird uncle, Edgar Allan Poe, Queen Elizabeth II, Leonardo da Vinci, and more. This month, settle in for the fascinating story of Her Royal Highness, Princess Marie of Greece and Denmark, the last Bonaparte. I do not believe that any man in the world is more unfortunate in his family than I am. So wrote Napoleon Bonaparte in 1810, after facing another disappointment from his sprawling, fractious family. To give a little credit to the family in question, Bonaparte was as tyrannical at the dinner table as he was over the continent. In the first year of his empire, Napoleon wrote to one of his lieutenants that he expected absolute loyalty, subservience, obedience from his family if they wanted to share in his glory and power. I recognize only those who serve me as relations. My fortune is not attached to the name of Bonaparte, but to that of Napoleon. Those who do not rise with me shall no longer form part of my family. 
ruling over an enormous band of jumped-up Corsicans was really like herding cats, and even General Bonaparte himself could barely manage the task. The easiest cat in the bag was Napoleon's older brother, Joseph, with whom he had always been close. Joseph was the perfect family ally, smart, obedient, and less ambitious than Napoleon. Sometimes, Joseph was too unambitious. On the rare occasion that the brothers clashed, it was almost always because Napoleon was asking Joseph to do something besides sit around in the backyard watering tomato plants. In 1806, Napoleon ordered Joseph to go be King of Spain, which was absolutely the last thing Joseph wanted to do, and Napoleon fired back with that warning, Cross me and I'll scratch your name off the family tree. While Joseph eventually gave in, Napoleon faced stiffer resistance from his younger brother, Lucien. Only 16 years old during the French Revolution, in many ways Lucien Bonaparte was the true believer of the Bonaparte family. From the beginning, Lucien Bonaparte represented the radical branch of the family tree, an ominous position which would echo across multiple generations. A self-sworn Jacobin, the dramatic teenager vowed to die with a dagger in his hand. And as long as his older brother represented a threat to the Ancien Régime, Lucien would do anything to support his cause. In 1799, Lucien was elected president of the Council of 500, and his flair for drama played a pivotal role in securing Napoleon's rise. On the infamous 18th Brumaire, when Napoleon attempted a coup d'etat, Lucien slipped out of the council room chambers and told the guards that the Council of 500 is being harassed by a bunch of terrorists. Then, in a supremely goth move, Lucien pointed his sword at Napoleon's heart and swore to plunge it through his brother's chest if Napoleon ever betrayed the country. At that moment, Lucien ordered the guards in to expel anyone who resisted Napoleon's coup. The guards marched in, the opposition marched out, and Napoleon marched on to become the first consul. It was the end of the French Revolution. Without Lucien, Napoleon might never have come to power, but the moment he did, Lucien began to wonder whether he had not created a monster. Napoleon and Lucien clashed over Napoleon's iron-fisted rule over Europe, but they exploded when Napoleon extended his rule over Lucien's private life. Before the French Revolution, the teenage Lucien disobeyed his parents and married the illiterate daughter of an innkeeper. After bearing him two children, Lucien's first wife died, and the Bonaparte family couldn't wait to marry their third son off to someone more suitable. Unfortunately for Napoleon and his parents, Lucien already had a new wife in mind, a scandalous young widow named Alexandrine Joubertin. She was completely unsuitable. Despite the objections of his family, Lucien married Alexandrine and launched another tradition which would continue down his branch of the Bonaparte family tree for generations to come, marrying below one's station. Only Mama Bonaparte recognized her son's marriage. Nobody else was willing to risk Napoleon's anger. 
Despite a civil ceremony, Napoleon refused to recognize Lucien's second marriage or the child it produced, and in 1803, Napoleon made good on his threat, and he sent Lucien, his wife, and their children into exile. But the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and Lucien had a lot of enemies. So it didn't take long for Lucien to begin making wealthy, powerful friends, starting with the Pope. In 1804, Napoleon rose once more from first consul to emperor. Napoleon issued a reminder to any members of the Bourbon family who still had heads on their shoulders, don't even think about trying to reclaim your throne. He issued a proclamation outlining the Bonaparte line of succession. Lucien Bonaparte, without whom Napoleon might never have risen to power, disappeared from the official Bonaparte family tree. A few years later, Napoleon offered Lucien another chance. Divorce your wife, and I will welcome you back into the line of succession, and I will recognize your children as my family. You can even keep Madame Joubertin as your mistress, so long as you bend the knee and apologize for what you did. Lucien rejected the offer, and he tried to escape the continent altogether. Sailing for the United States, Lucien and his family were captured by the British, who allowed him to live the life of an English country gentleman. Napoleon was convinced Lucien was conspiring against him. When in truth, the former Jacobin spent most of his time geeking out about telescopes and writing terrible poetry about Charlemagne. After Napoleon's fall from power, Lucien moved back to Italy, where his friend, the Pope, granted him a very splendid title, the Prince of Canino. Ooh la la. With oodles of money and a dozen children to occupy his time, Lucien spent his days scribbling more mediocre poetry and excavating his backyard for Roman ruins. To the end, Napoleon could not stop telling his little brother what to do, and even from his exile on the remote island of St. Helena, Napoleon wanted Lucien to cease writing poetry and to busy himself with writing a history of the revolution and the emperor's reign. Napoleon died before reconciling Lucien to the official family tree, and the Bonaparte line of succession soon became a headache which would rattle Europe for the next century. Napoleon's legacy was supposed to be a child of destiny. In 1810, desperate for an heir, he'd married the great-niece of Marie Antoinette, a neat little way to tie up any loose ends and bad feelings. The couple could barely stand one another, but they did their duty well enough to produce Napoleon Jr. In 1814, he reigned as Napoleon II for two weeks. And before you scoff, what did you accomplish as a three-year-old? Not for the last time, the Bonaparte family made a home for themselves in Vienna, where Napoleon II spent his time twiddling his thumbs, doing nothing of importance, and then dying of tuberculosis at the age of 21, without an heir. Napoleon Bonaparte's older brother Joseph had died without having any sons, so the line of succession should have passed to Lucien, old but still kicking around the Italian countryside. 
But since Napoleon had erased Lucien and all of his children from the Bonaparte family tree, the line of succession skipped down to the next Bonaparte brother, Louis. Unlike Lucien, Louis was determined to do whatever it took to stay in Napoleon's good graces. By hook or by crook, he was going to write his family into the Bonaparte line of succession in permanent ink. Louis sucked up to his older brother in the most predictable fashion. His first son was named Napoleon Charles Bonaparte. His second son was named Napoleon Louis Bonaparte. Then, just for good measure, he figured, why not hedge my bets? Here's my third son, Charles Louis Napoleon Bonaparte. Hedging bets was a good idea, since the first two Napoleon Bonapartes from the Louis branch died young. So, for those following along at home, Napoleon Bonaparte died on St. Helena, his son Napoleon Bonaparte died of tuberculosis at 21, and the claim passed to his 24-year-old nephew, Louis Napoleon Bonaparte. <sighs> Meanwhile, back in Italy, Lucien Bonaparte's children were growing up, and one son in particular seemed to have inherited his father's legacy, for good and bad. Despite being scratched out of his brother's line of succession, Lucien also enjoyed naming all of his kids after the emperor. His fourth son, Pierre Napoleon Bonaparte, was a real chip off the old block. Just like his dad, he spent his teens and twenties desperate to die with a dagger in his hand. Known as the Wild Boar of Corsica, Pierre enjoyed nothing more than a good old-fashioned street fight to the exasperation and embarrassment of his parents, who, on at least one occasion, begged their friend, the Pope, to please arrest their son for his own good. They weren't wrong to do so. Right after Pierre was released from jail, he went off and stabbed someone to death. Pierre was sentenced to death, but come on, nobody's going to be the one to execute a Bonaparte. So Lucien sent his idiot son off to America until things cooled off. Pierre fell in love with New York City, probably because it offered so many rich opportunities for a street fight. But at some point, he ran into his cousin, Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, the new heir. Louis Napoleon was trying to gather supporters for his cause, but Pierre was more interested in gathering mistresses for his bedroom. Then, in 1852, history repeats itself, this time as farce. Louis Napoleon makes his move and names himself Napoleon III. That same year, Pierre Napoleon falls in love with a woman completely below his station. The new Emperor Napoleon tells his cousin to knock it off, but like father, like son, Pierre tells the Emperor to stuff it and he marries Nina, the illiterate daughter of a foundry worker. Then, you guessed it, Emperor Napoleon III got mad and refused to recognize Pierre and Nina's marriage. Nevertheless, the couple had a bunch of children and puttered around the countryside, where Pierre raised a pet lion and managed to keep himself mostly out of street fights, for a while at least. In 1867, Pierre and Nina got married again, in the hopes that Pierre's cousin Louis would recognize her and their children this time. But Napoleon III still refused. In fact, he told Pierre to stop using your middle name in public, 
There can only be one first name Napoleon Bonaparte. Pierre, Nina, and their children were social outcasts. And in a surprising turn of events, this did not turn Pierre's mood around. In 1870, Pierre took time to troll some anti-Bonapartists with an outrageous letter to the editor. The anti-Bonapartists took offense at this obviously uh, controversial op-ed in the newspaper, and a pair of gentlemen marched over to Pierre's house the next day. After ringing his doorbell, they challenged Pierre to a duel. I don't know about you, I personally would not challenge someone named the Wild Boar of Corsica to a duel, but that's just me. We can never be sure what happened next, but the next five minutes changed the family's fate forever. Pierre Napoleon Bonaparte, cousin of the emperor, shot an unarmed man to death in his front parlor. Pierre Bonaparte's case was the trial of a generation. A hundred thousand Parisians attended the victim's funeral, and European intellectuals saw the trial as the end of an era. In a letter to Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels observed, This Pierre Bonaparte scandal is a splendid initiation to the new era in Paris. Louis is decidedly done for. For the bourgeoisie, a most unpleasant awakening from their illusions, as if the whole foundation of corruption and vileness, built up so slowly and carefully for 18 years, were about to collapse. The victory of Pierre's acquittal was short-lived, however. Within a few months, the communards looted Paris, and yeah, they took extra pains to loot the despised Pierre Bonaparte's home before they burned it to the ground, erasing the last of the family's fortunes in a single blow. Pierre and his cousin both hit the road for Belgium. No longer under his cousin's tyranny, Pierre and Nina had one last wedding ceremony, legitimizing their union once and for all, along with their children. Having accomplished this, Nina left the wild boar of Corsica for good. Pierre spent his final days in drunken debauchery and poverty, while Nina set her sights on securing her family's future. Illiterate, despised, and impoverished, Nina had only one asset left. At long last, she and her children were officially Bonapartes. If Napoleon Bonaparte may be history's most ambitious social climber, his nephew's wife could probably give him a run for his money. Despite her own illiterate background, Nina's son, Roland, soon proved to be a brilliant scholar who shared his mother's ambition and love of money. Roland didn't have any money, but by God, he was a Bonaparte, and they might not be on the throne at the moment, but the Bonaparte family had a habit of turning up like a bad penny every 20 years. Nobody was ready to count the Bonapartes out of world history just yet. It was the Gilded Age, the Belle Epoque, when the Industrial Revolution produced its first generation of children ready to marry their new money to old names. Nina only had one son, one opportunity to marry him off to the right match. She only had one card to play, you might say. And in 1880, where else could you place your one big bet but the greatest gambling hall of Europe? Monaco. 
At this moment, let's back things up to 1806, while a newly crowned Emperor Napoleon was fighting to secure his territory, a set of twin boys, Francois and Louis Blanc, were born in southern France. Their father died just before the twins were born, leaving their desperate mother scrambling for means to keep food on the table. The two boys began working almost immediately, taking odd jobs as dishwashers and cafe waiters, but they had a knack for gambling in all of its various forms. They made money as easily at the card table as they did on the stock market. Eventually, in 1843, the brothers opened their own enterprise, a sparkling new casino in the town of Bad Homburg. Practically overnight, the casino's success propelled the Blanc brothers into the social stratosphere. This was no low-down gambling hall. The Blanc Casino drew a dazzling clientele of aristocrats, wealthy playboys, and beautiful heiresses. No matter how much money the aristocrats lost, everyone seemed determined to return to the casino to try their luck again. Before long, Francois Blanc, most often seen walking the floors and shaking hands with high rollers, acquired the nickname the Magician of Hamburg. Nothing touched him. Even a near disaster turned out his way in the end. On September 26, 1852, another bored aristocrat walked through the casino's doors. Charles Lucien Bonaparte, the elder brother of Pierre Bonaparte, a.k.a. the Wild Boar of Corsica. Unlike his brash, brawling younger brother, Charles Lucien passed his time studying, illustrating, and discovering new birds. The morning doves I grew up listening to outside my bedroom window are named after Charles Lucien's wife. Francois Blanc wasn't exactly shaking in his shoes when the most mild-mannered member of the Bonaparte clan walked through the casino doors. Perhaps because of his unassuming disposition, or perhaps because he had the tremendous and rare good luck not to have Napoleon anywhere in his name, over the next three days, Charles Lucien Bonaparte enjoyed an incredible run. Within 72 hours, he broke the bank and walked out with a staggering 180,000 francs at a time when the average French man earned two francs per day. Charles Lucien spent two days resting, probably distracted by a new type of crested sparrow, and then he walked back in the casino. If his first run had been improbable, his second run seemed nothing short of miraculous. The quiet, mild-mannered ornithologist from New Jersey, the least ambitious member of the world's most ambitious family, the cousin of Emperor Napoleon III, won an additional 560,000 francs. The winnings were staggering. It was almost enough to sink Europe's grandest casino. After probably spending a few moments in the casino kitchen with a glass of brandy, Francois Blanc turned disaster into an opportunity. The same way an airport casino in Las Vegas might flash a giant loose slots sign above the front door, Francois Blanc told Europe, hey, we're giving away money over here. Don't miss your chance. The ploy worked. Thousands of European aristocrats, heirs, and fools streamed through the casino doors. 
Eventually, they lost so much money at the casino that the magician of Hamburg turned a profit on the whole enterprise. You know the saying, the house always wins. In 1863, the magician of Hamburg had a new trick up his sleeve. Francois Blanc purchased the casino of Monaco, along with every bit of real estate that the tiny principality had for sale. Francois' considerable fortune grew into the kind of personal wealth usually guarded by a dragon. Money followed wherever Francois went, and even though he spent most of his time in Monaco, he kept an eye on events back in his native land. When Emperor Napoleon III's rule collapsed ahead of the invading Prussian army, Francois Blanc sent his secretary over to send daily dispatches from the front lines of the war and the commune. When the shaky Third Republic, which followed Napoleon III, ran out of funds to finish building Paris's fancy new opera house, Francois personally lent it the money. As always, his bet paid off, and the opera house's architect, Charles Garnier, was so grateful that he traveled down to Monaco to personally build a beautiful new theater for Francois's casino. When Francois Blanc died, somewhere outside Paris, a scheming old woman felt a great disturbance in the force. Nina, the Princess of Canino, the three times over wife of Pierre Napoleon Bonaparte, knew just the perfect husband for such a girl. When Marie-Félix Blanc met Roland Bonaparte, he was a brilliant scholar who had just graduated at the top of his class at the prestigious Saint-Cyr Military Academy, founded by his ancestor, Napoleon Bonaparte. A handsome young man, with a great mind and an even greater name, wrapped up in a flashy uniform. What naive young girl could resist? And Marie-Félix was certainly naive. As the youngest of six children, Marie-Félix Blanc was her elderly father's favorite. We don't know much about her childhood, except that it was so gentle that it produced a sheltered, gullible, foolish girl who could barely make eye contact with the world. Somewhere along the way, however, she managed to make eye contact with Roland Bonaparte, and she fell head over heels. Marie-Félix's mother disapproved of the match completely, and with good reason. Nina Bonaparte was still a social outcast with nothing to offer but her name. But oh, what a name it was. Marie-Félix's siblings had married for less. Her older sister had recently married a very dashing, very broke Polish prince. By now, the Gilded Age horse trade of an ancient name for new money made even the son of a famous murderer into a suitable match for an heiress. The two mothers came to an agreement, and on a rainy November 17, 1880, Roland Bonaparte and Marie-Félix Blanc were married in a fabulous ceremony at the Blanc family church. Roland and Nina began their scheming only an hour or so into the marriage. After escorting his new bride into a carriage after the wedding ceremony, Roland made a sudden change of direction. Instead of taking Marie-Félix to the wedding reception where her mother, siblings, and friends were waiting to celebrate, Roland sped them straight out of town to his estate outside of Paris, 
If you've ever read anything about emotional abuse, or you just know anything about human nature, your inner air raid siren is probably going off right now. The new bride gathered up the courage to ask, where are you taking me? But Roland simply said, to my house. You may think a carriage suddenly changing direction on a wedding day is a bit too on the nose, but nobody ever accused the Bonaparte family of subtlety. Upon arrival at Roland's estate in Saint-Cloud, just outside Paris, Marie-Félix began a life of miserable seclusion. Roland and Nina despised the new bride. She was sheltered to the point of absurdity. Lightning and thunder scared her so much that the 21-year-old woman would flee to the basement. Marie-Félix was a superstitious scaredy-cat, uptight, and worst of all, sentimental. Isolated from any friends or family, Marie-Félix kept company with cats and ducks, and she gave away her money like it grew on trees. In the long stretches in between visitors, Marie-Félix kept her mind occupied with French and German poetry, which Roland hated, and beautiful waltzes on the piano, which Roland hated even more. Roland spent most of his days locked in his study. There was only one activity they seemed to have in common. They were both trying, desperately and without any fun, to conceive a child. Every month Marie-Félix waited, and every month she was disappointed. Over and over again she visited doctors searching for answers. They all prescribed cures and medicines and techniques and advice. But what is unclear is whether any of these doctors suspected the truth. Did they notice that the young woman in front of them seemed pale? Especially pale, even by Gilded Age standards. Did they notice that this young patient was weak and frail? Did they chalk this up to delicate femininity? Or did they realize what was really happening? Did Roland? Did Nina? This is the great question at the heart of this story to come. How much did Roland and Nina know? And how much did this influence their actions? Were the events to come an unforeseen tragedy? Or was it something more sinister? When Roland Bonaparte kidnapped his new bride back to Saint-Cloud, the very first thing he and Nina did was to take out a life insurance policy on Marie Felix. They had noticed right away what so many doctors failed or refused to see. Marie Felix's cheeks were pale. She swooned. She fainted. She coughed up blood. Marie Felix wasn't simply frail. She was consumptive. Nina and Roland blamed the cold morning baths, the corsets, the delicate nature of womanhood, and as with so many young women of the 1880s, Gilded Age notions of fragile femininity helped disguise the essential truth. This 21-year-old woman was dying of tuberculosis. For Nina, it was a race against time. In 1881, Marie Felix's mother died unexpectedly at the age of only 47. To everyone's surprise, Roland refused to allow his wife to inherit anything from her mother, 
to add on to the fortune she'd already inherited from her father. Roland had been doing some homework, and he knew what nobody else in the Blanc family seemed to have suspected. Marie Felix's mother had been racking up enormous debts. By accepting any of her mother's money, Marie Felix would also be accepting her mother's debts. But by rejecting her mother's money, Marie Felix left the burden of paying her mother's debts to her siblings. The move stunned Marie Felix's siblings, who stopped talking to her, which was exactly what Nina had always wanted. Marie Felix was isolated from everyone now. There was only one danger left. If Marie Felix died before producing any children, her personal fortune would revert to her siblings. So, Nina and Roland encouraged Marie Felix, go to your doctors, take their advice, swallow their medicine, and try, try, try for a baby. At long last, poor Marie Felix discovered she was pregnant. Everything changed in a flash. For a brief period of time, the future looked rosy. Nina and Roland couldn't have been more doting. They kept Marie Felix surrounded with attentive, hand-picked servants to keep her healthy during the pregnancy. Whenever Marie Felix's tuberculosis attacked, the servants reassured her that she looked more beautiful than ever. "'Am I really all that ill?' she asked. "'Am I going to die soon?' "'Ah, no, dear. Of course not. Don't be silly. But now that you mention it, with a baby on the way, perhaps you should make a will?' On March 17, 1882, Marie Felix Bonaparte wrote a new will and testament. Wishing to give my husband, Prince Roland Bonaparte, a proof of my attachment, I leave to him in entirety the whole of my fortune. If I leave issue of our marriage, I leave to my husband all that the will permits me to dispose in his favor. With this crucial task completed, Roland and Nina went to great lengths to make sure Marie Felix and her unborn child would make it across the finish line. Years later, Marie Bonaparte would speak with her mother's physician from this period of time. As she wrote in her memoirs, Professor Pinard, who attended her confinement, assured me later that my mother was consumptive and that the whole of one lung was affected. He told me that in the course of her pregnancy, she actually coughed up blood several times, but her consumption was something to be denied. They wanted to be able to count on her death without seeming to do so. On June 30th, 1882, Marie Felix went into labor. Three days later, she was still in labor. On July 2nd, Marie Felix was fading fast, and so was her child. Professor Pinard delivered the baby, a daughter, blue and unmoving. Rushing the infant into the next room, the doctor heroically performed mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation for 45 minutes. Finally, the sound of a newborn baby crying reached Marie Felix's ears. Princess Marie Bonaparte, great-grandniece of Napoleon Bonaparte, was born. Relieved, Marie Felix rested quietly in her bedroom. Nina left the estate, her work to secure her son's fortune complete. 
Roland disappeared back into his study. A wet nurse took care of the baby. Marie Felix was alone again. A few weeks after the birth, Professor Pinard gave Marie Felix permission to get out of bed. She invited her older brother over for dinner to celebrate. At the end of the evening, as Roland escorted his brother-in-law to the door, Marie Felix turned to head upstairs. As she climbed into bed, Marie Felix felt a terrible pain that left her gasping for breath, asking for a doctor and a priest. As Roland appeared in the doorframe, Marie Felix looked at him sadly. My poor Roro, I'll never see you again. Marie Felix died the same way she lived, gently. She was buried a few days later in Versailles, next to her murderous father-in-law, Pierre. When Nina heard the news of her daughter-in-law's death, she was nothing less than delighted. What luck for Roland, she cried out. Now he gets the whole fortune. I liked murderers, Marie Bonaparte wrote in 1953. I thought them interesting. Had not my grandfather been one when he killed the journalist? And my great-granduncle, Napoleon, what a monumental murderer he was! Yet Marie's own father, the quiet scholar, could be just as ruthless as his father and granduncle. Perhaps it is no surprise that a Bonaparte would develop a lifelong interest in the dynamics of the family, but Marie's passion stemmed as much from her traumatic birth as her last name. Reflecting on her mother's life, Princess Marie Bonaparte considered her mother a scapegoat for what she called the Monte Carlo crime. Perhaps Marie Felix was always destined to die of tuberculosis, but nevertheless, Nina and Roland definitely conspired to accumulate her fortune before she did. Little Marie Bonaparte grew up believing her mother's fortune was cursed, and perhaps this was why she had little difficulty spending it and giving it away as an adult. First, however, little Marie Bonaparte would have to navigate the experiences which would inspire a lifetime of study. She would have to grow up, the child of a strange family, and she would have to create an even stranger family of her own. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. In the next episode, we'll discuss Marie Bonaparte's early childhood experiences, which would form the inspiration of her finest work, and then we'll get to her marriage, which makes the rest of the Bonaparte marriages look downright conventional. If you thought this episode was juicy, believe me, you will not want to miss part two. To tide you over until then, make sure to subscribe to the podcast newsletter at thelandofdesire.substack.com if you haven't done so already. I'll be telling the wild story of Francois Blanc's wife, which was too off-topic to fit into this script, but too crazy not to tell. Keep an eye on your inboxes. Until then, au revoir!